The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. And episode 31 sees us searching for the perfect martini. The king of cocktails will talk about its history, how to make one, and the best take on a twist will be shaken and stirred by spirits columnist, consultant and judge Joel Harrison. Plus, some breaking news of sorts. The wine trophy winners have been announced at this year's International Wine and Spirit Competition. The Oscars of the wine world will feature some of those taking a trophy home and... Talk about judging, too, and how it works with Master of Wine, Alistair Cooper. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It's often described as the king of cocktails, and while the margarita or the Negroni might rival it for popularity these days, the martini must surely lay claim to being the most famous Though it has been around for well over a century, its history is a little opaque, but its celebrity status is much easier to attribute. The name's Bond, of course, James Bond. Ian Fleming went as far as spelling out the recipe in his first novel, Casino Royale, and the words shaken not stirred have featured ever since. So who better to talk to than the only man I can think of who could outshine James Bond himself in the sartorial stakes, uh, the man with the golden glass, it's uh, spirits columnist, club enologique, author, consultant and judge, Joel Harrison. Hello, Joel. Thank you, David. And what an incredible introduction. Thank you very much. I thought so. Worthy of uh, Fleming himself, wasn't it? Um, (laughs) Before we talk about James Bond, uh, we Mm. should go back to the basics because um, it sounds like a simple question, but I bet it's not. What is a martini? That is a very good question. And a martini really is is a mixture of uh, gin or or vodka um, and dry vermouth. So that's the white vermouth that you get in bottles. Um, and that's about it, really. I mean, the, the mixtures, the, the ratio is, is up to the drinker, the garnish is up to the drinker, um, but it's very much served um, straight up, not, not, not over ice, and in the traditional martini glass, which, which back in the day actually would have been a coupe rather than the V-shape kind of number that we know today. So you mentioned gin and you mentioned vodka. Now, I'm never sure. What are you supposed to use? That's a very good question. So personally, uh, for me, a martini is gin based because when we look at the history of where the martini came from, and we'll talk about that in a second, it was always gin that was the choice. So uh, if you call out a martini, you're asking for gin. If you call out a vodka martini, you're asking for vodka. Um, now that, that, that for me is, 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 is how the basis of it goes. But I'm a, I'm a personally, I'm a gin drinking martini man, not particularly a vodka drinking martini man, but then I do quite like every so often a vodka martini made with a cocktail onion that is my, my a little a little thing i like every so often but not too regularly oh well uh yeah you shouldn't have onions too regularly anyway in drinks i don't <laughs> think but uh, we'll come to to twists and garnishes mm. in a minute yeah. but i want to ask you why uh, you would favor gin in a martini the thing about gin, A, it creates a brilliant balance with vermouth. So vermouth is a sort of aromatised wine, a fortified wine that gives you, you know, additional flavours of herbs and spices and a sort of slight sweetness as well. But what you get with gin is you get this incredible opportunity to have a portfolio of flavours in, in, in different uh, different varieties of gin. So you'll get some gins that are very heavily spiced, you'll get some gins that are very heavily citrus-led, and some gins that are very true to their core, that kind of junipery note that comes through. And that's the nice thing about a martini is that you can have a million different martinis with, with a million different gins at the moment. And, and of course, switching up the vermouth as well. Let's not forget the other side of, of the martini. Vermouth is a great growing category of, of drinks and there are plenty out there to choose from and different vermouths in the same way that, that tonics will with a gin and tonic will, will give you a different martini. And what is the correct ratio then between the gin or vodka element and that all important vermouth? <sighs> Goodness me. Now, this is entirely up to the drinker. And this is where we come into the idea of what's a dry and what's a wet 
uh, martini. So a wet martini is considered where the ratio of gin or spirit to vermouth is relatively high. So some people will have a one-to-one -one mix, equal amounts of gin and vermouth. That's it. That's sort of seen as an incredibly wet uh, martini. Uh, you can also have a, 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 a reverse martini, which is where you have more vermouth than you do spirit, more, more, more vermouth than you do gin. Personally, I don't really see the point of that, but uh, you can have a, a, a reverse one. A dry martini is when you're using less uh, vermouth to gin, and I'm in favour of that. So my personal recommendation would be somewhere in the region of two to three parts, probably three parts gin to one part vermouth. Um, again, it depends on the vermouth you're using. If you're using a really big, punchy, quite heavily oily vermouth, then you would dial it back. I'd maybe go four or five parts gin. Um, it's, up, it's up to you. The, the, the amazing thing is, uh, if you go to some bars uh, around the world, especially here in in London, um, the way that the, the way that martinis are made is it really differs. And there's a very famous hotel called Duke's Hotel, which is just off in St James in uh, in London, central London, and the. Uh, the, the, the bartender there is very famous, Alessandro Palazzi, very famous for his martinis. And basically what he does is he just drops in a couple of drops of his own homemade vermouth, washes the glass round, throws it out, and then pours in straight from the freezer pretty much neat gin into his glass. I think it's five measures of neat gin in each martini. And uh, that's his way of doing it. It's literally just a wash of, of vermouth around the glass. Um, that uh, is very strong, it's very tasty, uh, but for me, maybe, maybe a bit too dry if I was making that at home, but certainly a real treat when you go to Duke's Hotel. It's the, probably the, the London home of the cocktail, isn't it? And and uh, yeah. we, we can uh, talk about it in the context of Ian Fleming and James Bond fairly shortly, but first, I want to just pick up on that point about a wash, because I remember years ago being in a cocktail bar actually in New York, and I was asked if I wanted a wash. And I thought, uh, um, how very rude, I thought. But um, what, what difference can that wash, something that is literally being swirled around and then sort of chucked out, what difference mm. can that make to a cocktail? Well, it, does, it makes a huge difference. So something like a Sazerac cocktail where you have a wash of absinthe, it just adds this little bit of lift to the glass, a little bit of lift to the to, to, to the drink. I think when it comes to the martini, um, you know, for me, a martini is is, is, a, is a union, really, of, of the vermouth and, and the gin and to stir it down and create the right dilution. All these things are real expertise in the job. I mean, the one at Dukes is, is very much a nuclear strength kind of kind of martini. But if you go somewhere like the Connell, which uh, came top in world's 50 best bars uh, recently they make an incredible they're, they're, they're also famed for their mar for their martini trolley which they wheel over um, they stir it down in a in a glass with vermouth, with vermouth gin and ice and then they add a dash of bitters into the glass and so they have their own house-made bitters and these again just provide a wash to the glass they give it a little lift and then they do this incredible pour from the from the mixing glass sort of above their head it's sort of four or five foot long pour into the glass which adds a a kind of extra mix to to, to the drink because it adds air into a bit like aerating a wine and it's just fa it's a fantastic martini so yeah i mean a stone's throw from each other duke's hotel and the connaught hotel in mayfair and st james's in london but you get two different types of martini but both absolutely world class oh well worth a martini crawl then i think absolutely, it's got to be yeah. classier than yeah. a pub crawl hasn't it we'll have to do it one day <laughs> uh, before um, i talk about garnishes and i want to talk about mm. the perfect sort of gins and vodkas and vermouths in your mind yeah. uh, to make that uh, perfect martini we should talk about the history and I did a bit of research on this and it's um, I mentioned in the introduction that it's somewhat opaque it's quite difficult yeah. to pin down the exact origin of the martini isn't it it is I mean and it's such a simple drink you know it's, it is just gin or, or vodka and vermouth white white vermouth dry vermouth mixed together that the that it's never was never really written down it was never really documented never really needed to be documented in some of the early cocktail books but the origins really of, of gin and vermouth coming together are in a book by Jerry Thomas from 1887 called The Bartender's Guide. He, Jerry Thomas was known as the professor of cocktails back in America. And, and actually at one point he was earning more money than the 
than the president, uh, than the than the vice president of the United States. Such was his fame in the sort of gold rush era of America for making cocktails. Wow. But he, um, yeah, he would he would talk about uh, uh, the Martinez cocktail and the Martinez cocktail, which is often considered the sort of forefather of the of the martini, is where you bring sweet vermouth and dry vermouth together. So those two types of of vermouth, and you bring in gin and maybe a touch of, of sort of curacao as well. But certainly those three ingredients. Uh, and that's where it really came from. And it's almost like a, a pared back version of that. But yeah, such a simple drink. I don't think it ever really needed documenting, which was why, why it was so, so the, the, the origins of it are, are murky, if you like, in that respect. But one thing is for sure, we're talking here about a cocktail that was there right at the beginning, right at the heart of the cocktail boom in the United States. That's right. And for me, it is the definition of a cocktail because, you know, gin and tonic, is that a cocktail? No, it's it's a mixed drink. It's, it's, a, it's a mixer with a, with a spirit. Uh, you start to get into cocktails when you start to talk about bringing two types of alcohol together, uh, two or more types of alcohol together. And I think for me, a martini is the perfect example of that. It's almost the purest cocktail there is, bringing together a, you know, an actual proper spirit, be it in vodka or be it in gin, and a grape-based, uh, you know, aromatised wine. Uh, in the vermouth and, and then you get to choose your garnish you get to choose the uh the, the, the style of serve that you like it whether you like it dry or wet and for me it absolutely if it was the only cocktail in existence i would still be a, a massive cocktail drinker and a happy happy man <laughs> yeah it is the king of cocktails as we were yeah, saying absolutely. at the start so what do you make then of what uh, ian fleming uh, prescribes in casino royale well, so let's start with let's start with the Bond legend of the shaken, not stirred, which which is absolute crap, quite frankly. Excuse my language, but <laughs> but there are two types of there are two types of cocktail. Uh, there are shaken cocktails and there are stirred cocktails. The point of a shaken cocktail is to chill something down, and you don't really want much dilution. So that vigorous shake with ice, yes, it does add some dilution, but it's there really to chill the drink um, or to sort of exercise it if you've got egg white in there and that sort of thing. If you stir a drink down, the point of that is to dilute and to chill. So really, for me, the martini is a stirred drink because you want to get some dilution in there. Like I say, you go to the Connell and that's what they do. They stir it down beautifully. They keep testing it. Any good bartender will keep testing it to work out the level of dilution before they pour it into the glass. Now, that for me then is is, is the right way to do it. You should never have a martini shaken. I think there's just, you're not going to get enough dilution in there. You're not going to be able to control the product well enough. Having said that, at Dukes, they do what, what I think uh, is a very excellent thing to do is because is they have pretty much no dilution. They keep all their glassware and their gins in the freezer. So they bring out a frozen glass, they bring out a frozen gin, and you get something that is absolutely brilliantly kind of natural in its in, in its in its presentation. Uh, but they're not shaking it either. And and if you go there for other drinks, they'll stir those drinks down, a Martinez, etc. etc. So yeah, that part of it, a bit hooey really. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of the shaken martini. And if you go into a bar and see somebody shaking it, I'll probably turn around and, and walk straight out again. <laughs> okay. But but let's let's not forget what uh, what Fleming added to the canon of cocktails when it comes to the martini, which is the Vespa martini. The Vespa martini I love, and I'll tell you about it in a second. But I'll tell you why I love it. I love that, and I love the Negroni. Why do I love these two drinks? Well, because they've they've become law within the world of cocktails. But they weren't invented by bartenders. You know, Fleming was not a bartender. He was a cocktail drinker. The Negroni, invented in 1919 by Count Negroni in a in a square in Florence, was he a bartender? No, he wasn't. So it just goes to show that you don't have to be a high-end bartender to be inventing drinks. You know, grab your bottles out of your cabinet at home, start mixing about, and you make them up with the next Negroni or the next Vespa. But yeah, Fleming came up with a Vespa, which is a, a mix of gin, uh, vodka, and a French dry vermouth uh, called Lillet, uh, Quine Lillet. So in the book, he actually calls for, he doesn't mention his vodka, he calls for Gordon's gin, and he calls for Quine Lillet. Uh, Kina Lele d doesn't exist anymore, that they stopped making it. It was actually a vermouth that was flavoured in part with uh, quinine and, and they stopped making that um, just because they found that quinine, although it's found in tonics and stuff, it isn't a brilliant product to use and it doesn't work brilliantly for, with, with, with some people. Some people have a reaction to it. So they don't make Kina Lele anymore. So you can't make the authentic version of this drink, but you certainly can buy Gordon's and you can choose any vodka off the shelf. Uh, and any, any dry vermouth. I mean, Lele make, a, make some great dry vermouths. So yeah, it's a drink that you can still make. 
Um, and it is a very delicious drink, actually. Uh, that mix of, of vodka and gin together just adds the level of, uh, of, of dilution, if you like, with, with vodka to the gin to round out any gin. And then you add in this French vermouth with a kind of sweetness to it. It's a beautiful drink and, and just goes to show you don't have to be a bartender to create world-class classics. Yeah, so Fleming was very right on one hand and very wrong on the other hand then. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think... Uh, you know, just goes to show we don't always get it right, do we? But but it's it's a nice thing. You know, everybody knows Bond for his shaken, not stirred quote. And if anything, it's great branding for James Bond, I think. <laughs> it's a great line. Absolutely. I just wonder as well, when you look at those early Bond uh, novels, um, you're talking about um, a frankly preposterous sort of level of virility there, a sort of He-Man kind of character. And I wonder if the shaken not stirred is uh, something uh, against dilution, the idea that, you know, James Bond would not want any dilution in his martini. It's a good point, that. And I think there is there's something beautifully elegant about a martini. And it's, you know, it sits in, in such... It's, very, it's a very stylish drink, but I wouldn't particularly in that era I've called it a particularly manly drink so maybe what Fleming was trying to do was kind of yeah give it a little bit of uh, a, a, a little bit of something more bond about it because it's quite an elegant drink I mean you only have to think about some martini parties that people like Wallace Simpson would have held where you think all you think about there is elegance you know rather than spy driven yeah like you say from those early novels spy driven manliness and maybe that's what Fleming was trying to do but but he, he got it wrong <laughs> well, as you say, you can't be right about everything, can you? He, he certainly no. uh, gave us inspiration for a, a, a new twist uh, on the drink, as you say, with the Vespa. I was quite surprised to see that he stipulated Gordon's. Now, I've nothing against Gordon's. I have it in my uh, drinks cabinet. But you'd think with that kind of uh, pursuit of uh, the finery in life that he might have gone for a more expensive gin, maybe? Well, do you know, this is a really interesting question and a really uh, particularly very pertinent question for, for, for the current gin boom that we're in because uh, he chooses Gordon's and Gordon's is a classic absolute classic why he chose Gordon's I, I don't know I'm, I, I haven't looked into Fleming's past enough to know if he was a regular drinker of that or if he had sort of some association with the, the company at the time that owned it who knows but what I would encourage people to do when I go for a drink at somewhere like Duke's or the Connell is I very rarely choose a craft gin for my martini because it, it's such a naked uh, it's such a naked cocktail, you know, that if you get the gin selection wrong, and by wrong I mean if it's too funky or too flavoursome, you can really unbalance the drink. And, and I would always encourage people, with the possible exception of a couple of new gins on the market, but I would say don't fear the classics. You know, there's a reason why Gordon's or Tanqueray or Beefeater have been around for so many centuries. It's because they're really great drinks really well balanced gins and as such in such a naked drink as a, as a martini they work brilliantly um, there are newer gins on the market say a uh, number three gin which is made by berry brothers and rudd down uh, ironically in st james's kind of opposites opposite dukes that for me is it works absolutely brilliantly in a martini so there are new gins on the market that work brilliantly in martinis but i would say be wary the craft gin that may be better at other more complex cocktails due to its it, their, their flavour profiles. And you mentioned uh, Dukes and you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, the, the inspiration for Ian Fleming. Dukes is a major part of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a, a former sort of um, uh, club for people who worked in the military. And I think the story goes that Fleming would hang out in there, which is now what's now the bar there, and overhear stories of spies talking about their their adventures abroad, which would become uh, the Bond novels latterly. Uh, and it was where he would sit around and, and drink martinis. And, and you know, what's been incredible is to see how that how the martini has really. I don't know, it's re I shouldn't say it's it, it, it's grown even it's reasserted itself in the world of of cocktails as as the classic you know along with the with the Negroni recently is absolutely the classic and what we see flying around us is we see things like um, the espresso martini or the, the 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 porn star martini or the passion fruit martini as it's often known you know these aren't martinis these are pretenders to the throne of martinis these are the boy bands where you really got where you want the rolling stones you know this this is <laughs> and, and that's what the martini is uh, you know it it is really come back into fame and come back into favor 
Yes, with the with the growth of gin, but also just with the growth of people looking for stylish, quality, excellent drinks. I love the idea of the Rolling Stones versus, you know, five or something like that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> totally. So let's go uh, to, uh, to to vermouth, because I promised we'd talk a little mm. bit more about the importance of that ingredient yes. uh, in the martini. Absolutely. Now, I went to a, a fantastic event hosted by Cocky recently, uh, the, yes. the legendary vermouth, uh, hosted at uh, the, the amazing Hyde uh, uh, near Green Park. And um, one of the conversations was around Cocky americano and there are those yeah. who say uh, that it is the closest you'll get to that uh, uh kina lily that's used yeah. in the vespa martini Do, would you agree i would yeah i would i would i think that the, the thing with choosing a vermouth so you get sort of two types of vermouth really you get a french vermouth and italian vermouth but then you also get what's known as an americano which is something that tends to leave out the, the wormwood so the word vermouth is a, a sort of bastardization of the, of the word wormwood which was included in a lot of the early vermouths um but what you're just looking for really is you're looking for something that is when you're making a a, a good martini you're looking for something that is is dry in style so it's clear in color that's your first kind of giveaway but also has a yes a sweetness to it because it's a vermouth but also is, isn't as sweet as and cloying as the, as the red vermouth that you get and it brings a dry back note uh, uh, to, 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 to the martini that uh, in a Vespa you're looking for with that Kina Lillet you're looking for something that's slightly bitter because that's what that quinine would bring to it and I wouldn't disagree that yes uh, Cocky has that in, in, in abundance it's actually a really really great product for that I would encourage people to play around a little bit. I mean, this is the fun of, of martinis. And um, uh, try at home making a couple of martinis with different gins and different vermouths. Try the vermouths neat, try the gins neat, just have a little, little sip, see what goes together and see how they work and then work out whatever ratio you like. Uh, and that ratio will be adjusted depending on your choice of garnish as well. I mean, if you like a, a, a nice oily olive in your martini, you might find that you want to dial back the vermouth because the oiliness of the, of the olive maybe replaces some of the oiliness that the vermouth would bring. Whereas if you like a citrus zest, oh, I love a citrus zest over the top of it, just sort of mm. tiny little thin slice of, of lemon peel, just expressed over the top, twisted over the top and put around the edge and dropped in. Then I, I tend to find that a little bit more vermouth brings a little bit more texture to your drink and, and balances out the citrusy notes that you're adding on top of maybe your citrus-led gins. So it's a great experience. And I tell you what, just book the next day off for, for a bit of a hangover if you're going to do that. <laughs> That's what I would say. <laughs> Hashtag uh, I, responsibly. Come on. <laughs> I love a citrus twist. Uh, what do you mm. make of a, of a dirty martini? I really love a dirty martini. I think a nice bit of oil in there really, you know, can, can do it. Can do a really good job. A couple of olives, you know, dropped into the glass. I, I, I like that. But then it, for me, again, it just depends on the time of day. It depends on the mood. It depends on the gin. Again, even cocktail olive, cocktail onions. I don't, I don't mind that. But, but that's pretty rare for me. If I want something really clean, really crisp, I'll go for a. A, a vodka-based martini with a cocktail onion in it. But that is once a year for me, I think. What about a cornichon? Mm, yeah, sort of similar thing. Just brings in that little bit of um, sort of pickliness to it, which I mm. which I like. Um, you know, I think this is the great thing about a martini is there's so many ways to present it. Uh, and so many people have their own different twist on it and their own personal likes. That's what makes it such a unique and interesting drink. Yeah, I love a cornichon in a vodka martini, actually. Yeah. But, um, give me the best gin, then, in... Uh, I know there are so many to choose from, and it is really yeah. great to hear you singing the praises of some of those classic gins, the old-fashioned ones, like Beef Eater, because the number mm. of times I've had the most amazing gin and tonic, and I've been like, wow, this is fantastic, what is it? And they'll say, it's Beef Eater, sir. And I'm quite surprised, because yes. well, I, know, I know what that is, but it's just fantastic. So oh, what, what, would, what would you I, recommend, then, for, a, the, my... for your perfect martini? My, my top my top three gins would be beef eater which i think is just phenomenal and what incredible value for money that is every single drop of beef eater gin is made at the beef eater distillery in kennington no matter where you buy it around the world a lot of other gins are sort of farmed out and, and uh, are made in different parts around the world but it's just got the perfect classic style for a great martini the other one is tanqueray 10 i think tanqueray 10 which is a slightly more citrus led gin 
just absolute quality. Love that in a martini. And I really, really like um, number three. Number three is my sort of go-to because it's so versatile. Great in a martini, great in a gin and tonic, great in a, in a Negroni. And then when it comes to my vermouth choice, do you know what? I'm not too picky on my on my vermouth. I like Cocky. I like Dolin. Um, I like just the straight martini brand. They do one. They do a beautiful one with a sort of filigree label on it that's absolutely stunning. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a. For me, the gin is more important because I'm drinking mine relatively dry. Like I'm going for three to four, probably four measures of, of, of gin. And then it's all about the dilution. Can I read you just something from, from Everyday Drinking by Kingsley Amis? Yes. Which for me is the drinks book that all other drinks books should be measured by, written by the king himself. And he writes about uh, the martini and he says, the best dry martini known to man is the one I make myself for myself. In the cold part of the refrigerator, I have a bottle of gin and a small wine glass half full of water that's been allowed to freeze. When the hour strikes, I half fill the remaining space with gin, flick in a few drops of vermouth and add a couple of cocktail onions, the small white hard kind. Now that is a drink. There was a man in New York one time who bet he could drink 15 double martinis in an hour. He got there all right and collected his money, but within another minute fell dead off his bar stool. Now knock that back and have another. <laughs> so I, I completely subscribe to the King's way of making a, a martini there. I would swap out cocktail onion for a, a, a twist of, of lemon zest over the top. But if you can keep everything cold, you know, a tiny little bit of water in the bottom of your martini glass, whack it in the freezer for a bit, allow that to go hard, pour in your vermouth, tiny bit of vermouth, pour in your gin, let it sit for a minute or two. A uh, little bit of a, a lemon zest over the top. My goodness me. And you don't have to have a martini glass. He uses a wine glass. I mean, uh, my goodness me, what a great way to spend an afternoon knocking back a couple of those. Yes, maybe a couple, maybe not 15. Uh, maybe not 15. But, no, 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 no. You don't want, to, yeah. don't want to be doing that. But yeah, and, I think it's a, a, a two maximum is, is, <laughs> works for me. I think that's probably right. I'm, I'm, um, it's Dorothy Parker, isn't it, who said of the Negroni, you should never have more than one, two at the very most, three you're under the table, four you're under the host. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I love yeah. that. I think the same is probably true of martini. Yeah. Final question then. What's the best yes. twist on a martini you've ever had? Oh, now there's a question. So I'll tell you one thing I really like to do, and this is a tip for anybody listening at home. Now I'm talking about the vodka martini and vodka martinis are okay. Uh, but I love a gin martini because of the flavors that, that, you've, that are locked up in a gin and that it brings to you. But if you get yourself a bottle of vodka and at home, if you eat oysters, uh, I'm a big oyster eater. People think it's quite a bougie thing to do. It's not really, oysters are like 70p each. You, you, you can buy them, you just have to learn to shuck them. Eat some oysters at home, have, a, have it as a starter or something. Take the shells, just wash the shells out gently. Take a Tupperware box, Fill the Tupperware box with a bottle of good quality vodka, so anything that's sort of 40, 42% and above, quite neutral tasting. Put your oyster shells in there, leave it overnight, 24 hours, 48 hours. Take it out, strain it off so you've not got any bits of oyster shells in your vodka, and you are left with an oyster-flavoured vodka. Now that makes an incredible martini. If you have some samphire on hand, maybe garnish it with a bit of samphire, but a little bit of vermouth, really just do a wash of your glass of, of a light, relatively oily vermouth, wash that out, chill down that vodka, or stir it down over ice, pour it into your glass, touch of samphire in there, and you have yourself an oyster martini. That is a fantastic drink, especially on Christmas day, if you're gonna have oysters with it, or you know, you're looking at something to bridge the gap between your Bloody Mary and your bottle of wine. Wow. Okay. Well, this is like Blue Peter for adults, really, isn't it? It's, uh, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I always learn something and I always come away with inspiration. So um, I hope that's the case for everyone uh, listening. Uh, Joel, thank you very much you very as much. ever for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Absolute pleasure, David. Thank you. Here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Ordinarily, we bring you medal-winning wine and spirit recommendations from the IWSC across the drinking hour, but for this edition, we're going one better, as it's trophy time. 
after the Northern Hemisphere wine judging back in May, then the Southern Hemisphere earlier this month, the judging committee met to assess all of the gold medal winners to determine which were worthy of a prestigious trophy. The results were revealed this week, so to talk through some of them and the process itself, Alistair Cooper, MW, a member of the committee. Alistair, hello, welcome to The Drinking Hour, welcome back. Hi David, nice to speak to you and it's great to be back again. Thank you. Uh, so just for those who don't recall our chat in the pilot edition of uh, The Drinking Hour, uh, way back in December last year when we chatted about wine judging, it was a great chat. Yeah. Um, remind us how the judging process works. Yeah, goodness me, was it that long ago? Wow, it doesn't seem that long, does it? Amazing. Um, yeah, the judging. Pro so the judging process is is um, is great at the IWSC. So so the way it works, we'll have um, panels of three. So each each day we'll have a certain country probably that's being judged by by separate panels, and each panel will have a panel of of three judges. Um, and then we have a wine judging committee who sort of floats around the room and uh, and aids any suggestions. So we'll have, say, a, a panel of three will be tasting a flight of Malbecs, let's say, from from Argentina. They will they will independently score each wine blind and enter their results onto their their laptop. And um, at the end of each each flight, which normally would be about ten or twelve wines in a flight, it could be more, could be less. They will um, then discuss their scores and it will come out with an average and um, they have the chance then to put their case forward. If you, you may have two judges that think a wine is, is better than another, that it deserves a medal, a, a bronze, silver or, or gold medal. Um, and then they will, they, they will discuss it and uh, come to a, a conclusion. And then if there are any disputes, I mean, dispute is a strong word, but disagreements or, or they, they, it, a, a wine may be on the cusp of, of two different medals, they will ask the wine judging committee member, which may be me or maybe one of the other others that day, to come over and taste the wine and come to a definitive conclusion. So the wine judging committee member has the final say on the, uh, on the final wines, but it's a very democratic process. It does work very well. And uh, I've been on judging where you have come over to uh, intervene to check up on what we're doing or to uh, intervene in a, a dispute uh, or at least a, a disagreement <laughs> as you say um, and yeah. um, it, it works both ways because in that role that you're performing you do occasionally bring things up uh, but you also occasionally bring things down as well don't you yeah that, that can be the case and I think that's where you know context is everything David with these with these things you know and, and you get sort of two layers of context here if that makes any sense so let's say you're judging on a panel with with two other members you're judging again I'll use Argentine Malbec as just an example you're judging a flight of Argentine Malbec the table next door to you probably may also be judging Argentine Malbec at the same you know same kind of level and I will be tasting on the side different things so you the context you have is of your say 10 wines that you're tasting but me as the judging member it may be a table next door have got a they've got a gold medal wine now I've tasted it and gone yep that's a gold medal and you have had you, you may have a question of a gold medal and you will call me over and you say, we think this is a gold medal. And I will have just tasted what I would actually say was a gold medal from the next table and be looking at those two side by side. So I kind of, as a judging committee member, I have an even broader context of, of what's being tasted that day and what might be. And I think you might remember we, we did this recently. I, you guys on your panel were, which is great, you know, asking the question, is this a gold medal? And I brought a, a wine over that I think was definitely a gold medal for me from the table next door. And it sort of put that wine into context. So sometimes it's great to ask that question, but sometimes it is, you know, a contextual thing. And I, and I will downgrade a wine to, uh, to, to silver. Um, so I think it's, um, it works very well just to have that extra layer of, um, of judging where that person's got, got even broader context, so to speak. It does. And I remember the moment very well. And we were pretty <laughs> convinced it was a gold. And then you brought us the wine from the other table. And we were like, oh, OK, all right, it's not a gold. Yeah, uh, but, but you so, know, no, but that's, it, that's good. But it was it was interesting on that one as well, David, because the I'd actually and I didn't tell you this, I'd upgraded their gold. So they, they were asking the question. They were sort of, is this a gold? This is we've given it. I think they'd given it 93, 94, so nearly gold. And I tasted it and I said, I think, you know, I really think that is. Um, so so it, it, in that instance, I'd actually upgraded them and then subsequently downgraded you. So it's again, it, it really is this contextual sort of element that's really, really important. So that's the judging process. You get these yes. gold medal winners and then they come through to the trophy. 
and uh, yes. I did trophy judging for the first time this year. I was very honoured to be invited along because it's a big, big deal. <laughs> and just explain yeah. um, to, to those listening how that trophy process works and why it's important. Yeah, that's a really fun process, really fun days tasting for us as well, isn't it? So the way that works is slightly different. So I think we had, I think we had about nine judges. So we'll all have the wine, the wine judging committee will be in and then a few extra judges were, were drafted in as well. And I think you, you, were, you were one of those as well, a few some senior judges. And then we will, ha we will taste between us all of the gold medal winning wines of the, um, of, of the show. So um, we were in panels of three. So there's myself and two other judges. And we will be served flights of all of the gold medal winning wine. So you, it'll be split into, I think I had five or six flights. We had Pinot Noir. So we tasted all the gold medal winning Pinot Noirs. They could have been from New Zealand. They could have been from South Africa. They could have been from Burgundy. They could have been from Australia. And we were served a flight of the 10 gold winning Pinot Noirs. And just ask the question, out of these, if any of these are what we would call trophy winning wine. So is essentially a sort of best in show. And we're sometimes taste 10 Pinot Noirs and we'll say that one is hands, you know, hands down a, a superior wine than the others. Or we might pick two. We might even pick three. We didn't do that. Or we might pick none. You know, are any of these worthy of being given a trophy? And then this is happening all over the different panels. So there's, it's, it's a really great day. And, and we, it's, it's an oral discussion. So we'll taste them. We'll make a few notes. And then we'll go round and say, come to some kind of um, conclusion or uh, which ones we think are worth those trophies. As you say, it's an extraordinary opportunity to taste as well, because you're dealing oh, with yeah. You're starting with gold medal winners. So there are no duds, Freddie said last week when I was chatting to Freddie Fulmer about this. No. It's, uh, it's just an incredible opportunity to taste some really amazing wines, isn't it? It is. And, and, the, and you know, the, and the great thing is that, that these wines have all been, yeah, as you say, all, they're, they're all great wines and they're all at different price points as well, because sometimes and the, and the results will show this this year, which is fantastic. There are some wines in there you know, that, that some super expensive wines and, you know, on the flip side, some wines that are, are, are supermarket wines are really, you know, really incredibly good value for money wines that have got, you know, that, are, that have overperformed, dare I say, um, in, the, in the judging process. And to have them next to each other is, is great to see. So they're all great wines in so many ways. And then to have this, this different thing where you're just judging them purely on quality alone is uh is, is fantastic yeah, it's a really great opportunity and we all we all we all really enjoyed that day very much didn't we it, we did definitely and it's testimony to the quality of the wine buying uh by those whose job it is to source wine that we get those yeah. uh supermarket wines that that stand up against the wines that are maybe three four times the price as you say absolutely incredible let's start with yeah. some of the uh, the trophies and the one that got the highest score 98 points and a trophy was actually a sherry an oloroso mm. from emilio lustau so that's actually we're talking about something that i think sherry is still undervalued and underpriced as a category isn't it oh absolutely you know you, you, you you're preaching to the converted here because sherry is one of the the greatest wines in the world and as you say quite rightly quite possibly the most undervalued underappreciated style of wine and i say that it, from, a, from a consumer point of view, really underappreciated because most of the people in the wine trade, it's a little bit like German Riesling. You know, we all love German Riesling, but it's largely misunderstood by the, by the consumer at large. And, and I generalise, of course. And I think it's the same with Sherry. It's, um, it, it's, its image is, is, is not what it, um, perhaps not what it should be. We all know what the, the image of Sherry is to the, to the audience at large, but actually it's one of the world's greatest stars of wine. It's hugely undervalued, hugely underappreciated, um, which makes it cheaper for, for us sherry nuts to, to, to access, which is great. But no, beautiful wines. And Oloroso is a style, you know, it's one of the completely oxidative styles. And I think that might be one of the issues for consumers. They don't understand oxidative styles versus, um, you know, um, biologically aged wines, you know, aged manzanillas on the floor. So I don't think people under, understand the difference between them, but the complexity you can get from these beautiful wines and the wines of Lustau uh, are some of my favourite sherries in the world. So it was great to see that that's coming out um, with, with 98 points. I mean, what an incredible score. Not sherry also really well we should say harvey's for their pedro jimenez uh, non-vintage too but let's talk about uh, english sparkling wine i should say welsh as well 
Uh, but here we're talking about uh, English uh, trophy winners. English sparkling wine had its best ever performance at the IWSC this year. Nye Timber, mm. the kind of daddy of them all, won 97 points yeah. and a trophy for its 2013 Blanc de Blanc in Magnum. It also scooped a trophy for its Tellington from the same vintage. Nye Timber just still doing a stonking job, isn't it? As you say, they're the, they're the flank bearer, they're the standard bearer, the, dare I say it, the original. The, the, I would say they're, they're, they're the estate that really put English sparkling wine on the map in the 90s um, and people perhaps thought it was a they were a one-off but now what we've seen fantastically is so many other English um, wineries coming to the fore new wineries as well and I was fortunate enough um, I don't know if you knew this David but I was lucky enough to be on the trophy tasting so I didn't taste these when they were first judged and awarded the, the gold medals but I was on the trophy tasting for um, for the English sparkling wines and you know we we spent a long time tasting these wines because they're, they, oh, as you say, there were no duds, but there was such an incredible sort of stylistic variation throughout these. You know, English sparkling wine is not a one trick pony. It's not just slightly malic led, um, like slightly acidic, you know, excellent fizz. There are so different nuances coming to the fore, but these two wines, it did stand out they really did and it was um, a very impressive performance from my timber for those two to come out we were we were very pleased for them um but there were a few knocking on the door but these two really did shine and um absolutely world-class sparkling wines there is no doubt about that in my mind what about champagne we have both rare and palmer and co winning trophies uh, reflecting two stonking vintages rare for the 2008 and palmer for the 2012 and also palmer winning for a blanc de blanc non-vintage and i suppose we should also mention uh, the incredible value offered by tesco's a premier crew which also got uh, a trophy for its non-vintage too uh, completely and, th and that shows as well you know you mentioned you know a couple of great vintages there the rare the 2008 what a beautiful wine that is and 2012 we've blessed with some great vintages in champagne and they really shone but as you say again as i I mentioned earlier on you know there's so many incredible wines at, at, at affordable price levels you know they're, they're more expensive wines but to see you know the tesco premier crew coming out with a, with a trophy a non-vintage i expect there'll be a huge run on that in the in the supermarkets in the run-up to christmas after this but it was you know it shows again when you're tasting blind um we're tasting purely on what's in the glass we're not affected by what's on the label um in any way shape or form and it just shows when it's tasted by a panel. This has gone through layers and layers of, of, of judges tasting, you know, exceptional judges. And to come out with a trophy is, is testament to the producer. And again, as you say, to the to the buyer in the supermarket, in which is which is Tesco in, in, uh, in this case. Yeah. Amazing wines. Yeah. Well done to the Tesco team. And yeah, uh, incredible value at about 20 quid. Uh, worth mentioning, too, a trophy winning French Quarter uh, from La Sparvière 2014. That was the vintage on that one. Let's talk Australia next, because Australia has uh, cause to celebrate trophies for a couple of epic Chardonnays. Castelli Il Liris uh, 2019 from Denmark, Western Australia, and Eddystone Point 2019 from Tasmania. And yeah, good performance for the Reds as well. Claire Rolt, Cabernet Sauvignon 2018 from Margaret River. Claymore Wines, London Corn Cabernet Malbec from uh, 2019 from Clare Valley, uh, scooping trophies yeah. as well. So a strong performance for Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to me to, to, to see Australia doing well. I'm a huge fan. Of, of Australian wines and it's great from, you know what I really like about this is seeing Western Australia coming for as well seeing Denmark you know everyone knows about Margaret River or you know a lot of people will know about Margaret River so it's great to see the Claro Cabernet Sauvignon 18 from Margaret River doing well but these sort of other areas in Western Australia areas like Denmark there's a great southern as well but Denmark doing really well and coming to the fore there, there's some beautiful wines coming from from Western Australia so yeah I was very pleased with that and again Tasmania um, so these slightly, dare I say, you know, less mainstream areas that, that maybe the, the consumer at large will not be aware of Denmark or Tasmania producing these great wines. So that was great to see. And again, you know, I've always been a huge fan of, um, of Clare Valley Cabernet. Um, it, the really beautifully perfumed wines and um, to see that doing well. Well, it doesn't surprise me, but these slightly, not obscure, but lesser known regions doing um, for the consumer at large, doing really, really well. So, yeah, it doesn't really surprise me, but, but well done to them.
And a couple of uh, great varieties that are uh, less widely seen also scooping trophies, which is uh, praise indeed. So we've got um, a Malagusia uh, from Alpha Estate, brilliant producer, uh, the single vineyard Turtles 2020, uh, getting a few, that's mm. from Greece, of course, and a trophy winning Pecorino from Abruzzo too, um, Codice <laughs> Sutra Nero 2020. Now you were overseeing yeah. the medal panels for this one. It must have been one heck of a Pecorino. Well, do you know, it, it was, and there's a, I'm, I've got a soft spot for Abruzzo. So I, I went, I've been there several times in the past. Well, it, not in the past year and a half for obvious reasons, but um, I went twice in, in the year before, um, before the pandemic hit. And um, so I got to taste a lot of Pecorino. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic grape variety um, that deserves more, much in the mold of, dare I say, Pickpool de Pinay that's taken, you know, taken the UK by storm. Really great, affordable um wines that tick all the boxes that the consumers are looking for at the moment and this pecorino for me yeah i it really it really did and I, and, I, and i was overseeing the judge and i do have as i say having been there recently a few times a relatively good understanding of what different styles there are of pecorino and i just think this one really really sung in the glass and i think it's a, a great variety that the that the consumer should hopefully we'll, we'll see more from because in abruzzo is a beautiful region one that deserves more attention definitely and their multiple chinas are great as well so yeah really lovely for me to see that real value to be had too among the classic regions Completely. we should say there's a famille uh, carabello bone 2018 Corton grand cru with 97 points mm and a trophy. So that was one heck of a wine as well. Let's talk about some reds. Um, Banfi celebrating a trophy for its Brunello di Montalcino 2016. And we have Piccini mm. honored for its 16 Brunello with a trophy as well. We have an Amarone from Cantina di Suave, uh, Rocca Sveva 2016, and Amarone della Val Policella Reserva 2016. And also yeah. Corte Canella 2015, Amarone della Val Policella Challer as well, and also a Barolo from GD Vajra, which is not a producer I knew, a Lagia Biana 2016. Um, you were overseeing judging for that one too, I think. I was, and I was very lucky to. Um, and I, I remember quite clearly that being picked out for the by by the uh, panel. I remember Matteo Montoni, Master Sommelier, was on the panel, and, and he he instantly gave that one a gold. And um, and I, I retasted it, and absolutely one hundred percent, that was a that was a gold-winning medal. Actually, they're they're it's in, you say you haven't heard of them. They're one of my favourite producers, Gide Vira. So I've visited them a couple of times out there, and um, and of course we have no idea what these wines are, but the purity of that wine from a really good vintage really really stood out. So again, great to see these wines. We have no idea what they are coming out on top it, 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 it puts a smile on your face so yeah well done to them for, for, for that one well Gidi Var is definitely a, a producer I'm going to get to know because I tasted that wine after the trophy judging had uh, finished uh, when remember, we were yeah. uh, having lunch and it was uh, absolutely sensational so let's talk about uh, um, uh, some, somewhere else, California, Francis Ford Coppola, the Doctor's Cut Zinfandel 2017, uh, got a trophy. Mm. And then Argentina, a country that you know very well, Routini, uh, single vineyard Malbec 2017. Uh, both wines that you may recall. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember both of them very clearly in the judging panel. And looking first at the Zinfandel, I, I remember we had a... Not, not a disagreement, but a, a, the, I was posed the question. I think this was, again, a borderline 93, 94, 95 wine. And um, actually, one of the panel members said to me, you know, you know, the Zinfandel, it's, it's good. It's a nice glass of wine. But is this a gold medal? And I, and I asked the question. I remember asking the question, you know, what? What more can this wine do? It's supremely balanced. It's got an amazing concentration. It's fun. It puts a smile on your face. It's ready to drink. There were so many things going for it. You know, what more would you want from it? And the answer was nothing, actually. And at that point, it clearly became a gold medal. And I, yeah, really, really impressive wine. And, um, and, and it's great to see Zinfandel doing well. It's an unappreciated style of wine over here. We don't, in America, it's, it's, um, in the states it's much appreciated but not quite as much over here um so that was great and the routini malbec yes you know they're they're a great producer and i, and I clearly remember that one standing out as well so yeah we had some great wine martina but that really did shine and uh, tasting after the trophy tasting as well it was looking in really really good shape so well done to them yeah it was um great to see domaine paul mass uh jean-claude mass at the helm there winning a trophy for its uh, chateau de crez ricard stacia 29 
2019. Not sure about my pronunciation from Arzak. And also um, Peter Swelva in Altua DJ for a cab franc from there, underlining the fact that awards don't just go to the really well-known, well-established regions. They, they also go to some, some unusual grapes in unusual places too. Yeah, completely. As you say, you know, Cab Franc and Alto Adige, perhaps not something that you'd you'd expect to come across. And, and the, those things have happened. I think remember, remember last year, there was a Malbec from oh, some, somewhere in Canada that did remarkably well. And everyone was like, wow, that's fascinating. So no, it just goes to show, as you say, that, that um, there's no bias in this and, and that it's um, not just the established regions, these regions that maybe are a little less known and often great varieties that you might not expect come from those regions you know cabernet franc perhaps in outside of jade not something you'd expect to see and and i think the uh, as you say domain pour mass as well great to see these these large producers doing extremely well um in a, in a in a big lineup as well so you know even these huge high volume producers make some incredible wines so um yeah really good to see and just round off our meal of trophies with the, the uh, sweet wines. And there was a host of them doing really well. Sometimes a difficult sell, sadly, but um, performing mm -hmm. really well in trophy terms. We've got Inniskillen, Niagara, Cab Franc, Eye Wine 2019, Morris Wines, Classic Muscat, non-vintage from Rutherglen and Campbell's, another great name, Merchant Prince, Rare Muscat, non-vintage, also from Rutherglen, of course, Debotoli, uh, Dean Vat 5 Petritus Semillon 2018 from Riverina um, and also mm. uh, Estate Argyros uh, late release Finsanto 2001 and in a similar vein we've got a Kotke 40 year old Tawny Port too which was absolutely epic so a really lovely selection there. Yeah, and it's interesting you touched on that at the beginning, David, that saying that they're they're often a hard sell. And um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's sad, isn't it? I think over here, consumers, and perhaps it's not just in the UK, don't um, appreciate or, or find the right occasion, maybe it is, to, to open these sweet wines. And actually, I, I'm possibly guilty a little bit myself. I have a lot of these wines in my cellar and in my wine fridge but um sometimes you know you've got to find the right occasion and the right people to but some of the finest wines in the world are sweet wines and, and as you you've mentioned a few of them there you know ice wine you know the inniskillen ice wine that's you know that's a, a benchmark absolute beauty and then we look at rather glen muscat one of the greatest wines in the world hands down mm. whoever gets to judge that it gets so happy i mean that's just Christmas pudding in a glass. It's an absolute beauty of a wine. And, um, you know, these are wines that have been made for, for, for a long time and they, they, they demand a lot of time to, to mature and, um, and they, they, they just offer something. There's so much concentration in these wines. And again, all, all of the others, Vincenzo and then Kopke, you know, 40 year old Tawny Port and from Kopke, I believe are the oldest port estate going back to 16 or 1630. Eight, I think I might be wrong there. Something within the in, in first half of, of that century, and really, really beautiful wines. A forty-year-old tawny, you know, there's history in a the glass there, um, and it's just finding the right time. And 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 they're very. Again, we talked about sherry being undervalued and underpriced. All of those sweet wines are as well. They're, there's so much intensity and uh, wonderful, wonderful wines. Well, we're going to have to raid your cellar if you have a, um, a surplus of those delicious sweet wines. So we'll have not to arrange surplus. that. Not surplus. <laughs> just, I've got a few of them knocking around. But, you know, and it's again, you know, just thinking about port, you know, it's a shame that we only drink port at Christmas. I understand it. And they're a sort of victim of their own marketing in, in many ways. But there's so many times that a glass of port at the end of a meal is a, is a wonderful, wonderful drink. Oh, yeah. I agree. Uh, Alistair, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for helping me rattle through those trophy winners. Well done for your role in awarding uh, those, uh, those, those medals and those trophies too. And thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. No problem. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's my pleasure really to be involved in that thing. It's, um, we're very lucky to, to get the opportunity to taste these wines and hopefully, you know, the, the, the producers, it, it helps them and, um, and help, ultimately helps the consumer as well, making some really informed purchase decisions. So um, no, thanks for, thanks for having me on and look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon. Alistair, thank you. And yes, well done to all of those winning a medal and most especially those producers winning a trophy. My thanks to Alistair Cooper, MW, and also Joel Harrison too. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for this week, that's it. Talk to you next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition.
using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.